Welcome to Insight Out, a podcast from Ipsos UU that explores emerging trends, budding innovations, fresh thoughts, and creative ways to get closer to real people in real life. Each episode features thought-provoking conversations showcasing industry-leading thinking from the Ipsos Global Network of Insight Specialists. I'm April Jeffries, and I'm your host of today's episode of Insight Out. Today, we'll be speaking with Menika Gopinath, who's the president of our communities and social intelligence business. Menika will help us shed some light on the role of the digital native, particularly in this crazy year of 2020. And we're gonna talk about how brands can respond and be a meaningful part of the conversation. Menika, hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you, April? I'm good. I'm good. So um, we are here today to talk about, so this year, uh, the Inside Out uh, focus has been on culture, right? And you and I were talking the other day, and you used a term with me that I thought, hey, that could actually reflect culture. And the term you used was digital native. So first of all, help me, under. let's define that. What is a digital native? Well, I mean, I think there's lots of different definitions out there, but I think the biggest um, definitive point of a digital native is that it's someone who has grown up with digital technologies. Um, so basically one born in like the 90s or after could be defined as a digital native, but um, it's really about people that have always known communication using digital devices. Because I yeah. think like I personally remember the first time I got a cell phone and got a text message and like that wasn't in existence when I was a kid. Wow. So how old were you when you got your first cell phone? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, technically, actually, when I was in high school, my parents got me one of those like huge block phones, you know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that I was embarrassed to have. But um, yeah, like I think my first real cell phone was when I was in college in the 90s, late 90s. Yeah. Okay. So I did know what a digital native was, but but I think there's something in here that's kind of interesting because so when, when Emma and I had decided to look at um, culture, that was back in January. We had no idea that 2020 was going to turn into the doozy of a year that it has turned into. Um, and I think the notion of culture has kind of taken a lot of different slants, don't you think? Um, how do you how do you feel about that? And how has the digital culture sort of played a role in all that's happened this year? Yeah, I think in like everything we're looking at in all our research, as you know, it's been the the theme of like things that already were bubbling under the surface, like yes. accelerating. And I think you can absolutely say that with, with digital technology as well. And some of the more murky elements of that, which is really like, like the social dilemma, if, if you've seen that on Netflix, mm -hmm. but like a lot of the themes that come through in that are things that had already been, um, you know, bubbling up and already happening. But I think the awareness of it is, is much more defined right now. The other piece is that 
I think a lot of people that didn't want to, like the laggards um, in the context of technology kind of had to. Who hasn't done a Zoom happy hour or a family call these days? Or, you know, a lot of people that probably never really wanted to do that as how they connect with one another um, were kind of forced into it. That doesn't mean everyone did it, but I think a lot of people that probably were, were opposed to it. And even you can see that from a, a parent perspective, like I have two young boys and my nine-year-old, we've tried to, like, we kind of defined like a digital pact with him at the end of last year, like how much screen time he can have, mm-hmm. what games he can play, all those things. And I, <laughs> we looked at it together last month and like everything had changed. Like none of it was accurate anymore because he's on a screen all day for school. He, oh, right. You know, the only way he can like, I mean, hang out with his friends, especially in the early days of the pandemic was like having a FaceTime together and maybe playing Roblox together. So a lot of the things that I think even parents were trying to really structure and define those boundaries, like a lot of those kind of went out the window in the context yeah. of the pandemic. So, yeah. So that's interesting. So, so you have a son then. Yeah. Two sons. Okay, so is there a difference between how, you know, the male culture uses this versus female culture, or do you know? I actually look at that because I guess we're researchers, so we're always curious about these things. But like, Uh for example, he plays Minecraft with a lot of boys, but he'll play games on Roblox. Um, like there's this game adopt me and, um, like there's so many games on Roblox, but there's more girls that he plays that with. I don't know if that means anything, but, um, it's interesting to see kind of how they select what they engage with in that context. Yeah. I'm not a cultural psychologist or something. (laughs) (laughs) It is interesting though. I mean, I mean, I'm sure, you know, that, that has happened along the way in every generation, but I think. This one's just a little, it's just a little different, don't you think? It's, it's a lot. I think early on, though, I was really focused on the idea of digital citizenship, um, which really means not being scared of digital, but more being aware and educating early on. So, like, that's a big piece that I know the school my, my older son goes to, they've been implementing digital citizenship education and curriculum from the very beginning, from kindergarten. Yeah, that makes sense. But but it is scary. I mean, should we be should we be scared? I I did watch the social media. I got to yeah. admit. admit. And yeah. um there were there were parts of that that were like, "Whoa, wait a minute. What have I what buttons have I pushed lately and what do they and I use air quotes as I say that. What do they know about me that I wasn't ready to share yet?" Yeah, I, I mean, it's a big, big conversation right now. And my, one of my first jobs was in online communities, which at the time was really what you define what was social media. It wasn't social media as it is today didn't totally exist yet uh, in the mainstream. And it was really how people started connecting online was very much driven by finding like-minded people, finding niche audiences that you couldn't find in your little area, right? It was bringing yeah. together in a really meaningful way, um, whether that's people that have neurodiverse backgrounds or love a, sp- a different kind of music or whatever, you know, like you, you just didn't matter where you lived and those geographic boundaries kind of were broken down. And so I still think that's a big p- 
part of what makes social media great. And I think we're still seeing that today in a lot of the movements that are enabled by social media. But just with as with anything, you can like you can abuse the use of it or you can leverage it in for good. And I think we're seeing a lot of the abuse of the technology. And it's really hard to say like it's this person's fault or this company's fault or the government's fault or whatever. Like everyone plays a part in it. And I think just like with like anything, the more awareness you have of it, um, the more that you can I, I guess take it in context, right? Because even like with social media, there's so many studies that you can find studies that say social media causes more um, depression, but you can find studies that say social media actually helps people combat loneliness. So it's it's really how you use it that is, I think, the biggest um, the biggest piece of that. So yeah, that makes sense. So. I graduated a little earlier than you did, but I remember even then we used to talk about how um, if technology advances faster than humanity does, then that's what happens, right? Then people start using the technology in ways that it isn't supposed to, even though the intent might have been something very different. So in this case, now we're talking about, you know, if the intent was to bring like people together, does that create a culture in and of itself, just bringing like-minded people together? Is that the same thing? I think so, yeah. And I actually, we're seeing it at the extreme now, I think, right? You're seeing the cultural bubbles that have been that have been created based on your feed, right? Like it's it to your point, it is they're looking at everything you're doing and using that as a as a contextual point to feed you content feed you advertising, suggest new people or things to follow, et cetera, et cetera, right? So all of those things kind of play together and that creates ecosystems of cultural thoughts and ideas and perspectives. And then that plays out in like the real world as we're seeing right now with like the huge divide across our country and even in the world. Um, and so, like, I think we saw this really when the BLM movement, um, you know, really took hold in June. A big talking point for people was, like, diversify your feed. Like, I like to say mess with the algorithm because mm -hmm. you have the ability to kind of that that will break the bubble. Right. Like if all of a sudden I stop following just white female bloggers that are telling me about health and wellness tricks and I'll, I like diversify that to someone who's a black person or a Latina person or whatever like it, it all of a sudden creates more diversity in your feed but even the topics right like for me I have a, a, a my younger son has special needs so I follow a lot of people in the special needs community but I also, I love like independent music. So I follow a ton of people in like the music industry and like lots of venues. But then after BLM, I was like, oh yeah, I do need to diversify my feed. So I started following like Blavity and like different things like that. And you can just see how all of a sudden things change. Like the things that you're exposed to become different. And yeah. so I think that is where individuals have such a power to kind of define and curate your own culture for yourself. That is very cool. 
That's very cool. And I and and kudos to you for doing that. But it sounds like you you need to be pretty intentional about that, right? You do. Yes. And I guess you can't expect that of everyone. Well, I don't know that everybody's as thoughtful as you are about that. And I don't know if there's a way to inf influence that. So so that kind of brings me to, you know, our how does all this play out with business and brands? I mean, you and I, so we're sitting together trying to run this uh, resource group here that's all about anti-racism and making sure that diversity and inclusion is a big part of our culture here. Um, but, you know, as we look at that, a lot of brands have been asking us, what role do we play in that? And, you know, how do we influence? So I think it's a it's a bigger question, not just about diversity, but more about what role do do brands play when it comes to influencing culture? Yeah, a big role for sure. Um, I mean, I know you know this, like at a lot of the data points that we've been seeing over the last six months, it's that brands have a very, very important role in creating a better future and creating a better society for us to live in. And it's their role in that has kind of overtaken the role of government in a lot of ways, right? So like a data point that I thought was so interesting was seeing that 53% trust brands more than they trust the government to get like accurate information. <laughs> like that. Wow. And another data point that I thought was great was like 57% of people think brands are doing a better job in the pandemic recovery versus like 30 something percent of government or for the government. So like there's just this increased expectation of brands to to be part of the solution and to fix a lot of the problems that are in society. It makes sense, right? We saw a lot of this um, at the beginning or the end of last year with the with the business roundtable and like looking at kind of the shareholder versus the stakeholder and um, kind of where the brand needs to play a role in that. And I think it's just becoming more and more clear, like the more recently in the voting process, right? When have you ever seen this many brands be part of the conversation around voter advocacy, um, voter registration awareness, all the things we're seeing there. And like people, for the most part, really agree with the, the role of brands in that context. I think it was like, we just put a study out. It's like two thirds of people agree that brands need to play a part in in the voting process. Like, but is that is that fair? I mean, come on, brands are, brands are businesses. Businesses are here to make money. Should I really look to a business that's supposed to be making money for that kind of guidance or leadership that you're talking about? I mean, I think it really, it's, it's part of culture. It's like, it's become part of my, like going back to the culture point. It's like, um, I think our public affairs team just put out a data point that said um, like more of our younger generation, they prioritize social progress over economic growth. Like social progress is more important to them than the growth of the economy, which that's a big conversation right now, right? In the political climate, it's like that's become it's become a holistic part of my like who I define myself as. If I'm buying from this brand, or I'm wearing this clothing brand, or I'm using this toothpaste, even <laughs> like all of those things play a part in in who I am as a person, and 
I think we're seeing that the biggest thing driving those decisions, particularly for our younger generation, is kind of what does that brand stand for and what are they doing? But it's more about like looking internally at who I am as a brand and what I I can be doing to be better. That's kind of how I look at it. It's like that we all want to be better. And how do we continue to kind of push for ways to do that? So in toothpaste, it's like we know toothpaste tubes cause a lot of like landfill waste, right? So, I mean, things like that, like what is your contribution to society and how are you addressing that? So yeah, I do think it's part of the brand's responsibility. If you're going to make it, you need to be part of part of the solution too. That's risky though, right? I mean, what if, what if a brand um, takes a position that turns out to be unpopular? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, okay, let me back up a little. So you run our, our community's business, right? And and a lot of, and you're listening, you're constantly listening, whether it's on the community or just in the social media space, right? Because you also have the social intelligence part of things. But, um, you know, there's this whole thing about the cancel economy and how, you know, if you take the wrong stance, people could turn against you. So how does that work in, in what you're hearing from people and, and, you know, how do you, how do you uh, recommend to brands, you know, what kind of a stance to take? Yeah. Yeah. Cancel culture is real. Um, but I think it, it really comes down to, and I know this is an overused word, authenticity. Mm. And I, it's, it's unfortunate that it's become a cliche at some level because it, it really does matter. Um, and I think every brand has a starting point. They have an origin story, right? How did I start? Why did I create this brand? Why did I create this solution? It was to address attention, a challenge, a need. It was to, I think every brand starts at a place of trying to make things better. And so a lot of times it's like going back to just that and using that as your compass. Um, because then it's, you can't really argue someone staying true to their who they are I mean you can I guess anyone can but if that's what's the driving force behind what you're doing and and the causes that you stand behind then I think it, it it's more meaningful yeah I like that I like that a lot because I I also believe that innovation generally speaking and I and ideas come from a need right or come from your personal connection to a need um, and so you're right. If you kind of go back to whatever that personal connection to the need was when the brand or business started, there's got to be a nugget of something in there. The issue is that nugget could still not make some people happy. And, you know, as a brand, I guess you you have to be prepared for that and willing to stand up for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a big conversation we have because social, you're always going to have haters and, it's almost like the bigger you are and the more um, notoriety you have, the more uh, frequent those haters are in their trolling of you. So, yeah, there's a there's an element of courage and vulnerability and the things that that are important to being a leader. And um, and I think that plays out for a brand just as much as it does for an individual. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I do think it comes back to the point we were talking about before, which is like humanity, like. It's you're seeing brands now 
which for I, I know for both of us, we've always been very human centric, but you're seeing all these brands talk about moving from a consumer centric to a human centric strategy. And you're like, yeah, because at the end of the day, we're all humans. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit about you then, given that, because I've worked with you now in different capacities over the and and I I think of you as someone who really it's interesting because you're a you're you know let's just get it done kind of person over here but there's this hugely human side of you that um, I find and it pops up sometimes when I least expect it right where and 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 when you talk about courage and you know standing up for things you you have a you know there's a point where you will just clearly state what it is you're feeling so so what what brought you to this place? Like, why? What do you think that is in you? And what is it about this role that makes that come out in you? If that's a yeah, sure. Well, ironically, in my early days of my career, I what I had a tendency to be very fiery in the maybe the wrong way. <laughs> like, I would get annoyed easily. So I would, I would get very frustrated quickly and um, and forget to pause and like just consider other perspectives. And that was that I think that was part of my drive, but it also was a big part of my um, downfall in ways where I wasn't as successful. I was I was not a good manager. And so that became a big focus for me. How do I become a better manager? And I didn't really prioritize it until later in life. My dad like was an executive at Boeing and I, I remember talking to him about it earlier in my career. And he was like, Manika, if you expect to grow in, in business, being a people manager is like a, the biggest part of your role. But I honestly have to say becoming a mother and that, you know, having that, like the patience that it takes to be a mother. <laughs> Um, and also being like this, this little thing's helpless and I need to like consider that. And like, you know, the empathy that comes from that, that had a big impact on, on how I, um, kind of carry myself in the workplace and even more so with my second son. So like I said, he has special needs and the big thing for me through that experience has been how, uh, how much we assume about people that we don't know. Like, so I'll give you an example. Like, you know, my son is nonverbal, but he has so many thoughts and ideas and desires and things that make him laugh. And like, so just to think that because someone can't use words that they don't have anything to say, like that's, that's not true. And so it's, it's really what it's really made me take pause in how I engage with anyone is realizing I don't know where they're coming from. And that's what I want to make sure I understand as kind of my guiding principle and how I engage with people. I, I'm still a human at the end of the day though. So <laughs> Yeah. But you're you're a great human, Manica, because I do I I think you have I think you have that. And it's interesting for me to watch you sometimes because I feel that first of all, you have a an interesting way of just sort of summarizing what just happened. <laughs> and what what you know and and it's always pretty accurate like okay this is what just happened here um but then i feel that you always do sort of put this human lens on it and i think as business people um we all need to really learn how to do that and it's interesting that you do that in the context of technology 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I end up having to do it a lot because we do, you know, face-to-face interviewing and, you know, context and all of that. But yours is to pull that out of, you know, this digital space, which is very different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think people are 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 recognizing that real time right now because of how many Zoom or FaceTime or Teams connections they're having instead of actually being IRL or in real life, as we like to say. So, um, and it definitely does not replace real life connection, but there, but yeah, it's really finding where there are those opportunities to engage in an online environment. For my team, like, like I, I oversee the communities team. And I think the biggest mantra I tell my team is like, don't forget like what you, what engages you, what do you care about? Um, like, would you want to take that survey? Would you want, would you know how to answer that question? Like if you kind of place yourself in the shoes of the person that you're actually asking to do all these things and kind of use that as a contextual point, or like, I think I told you like memes for me, memes are amazing. Memes basically in the social dialogue is like the, the images where people put their own little headlines on them. Yeah, I I, I kind of knew what that was, Manica. You didn't have to explain it, but I appreciate you doing that for the audience. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the memes. Sense. Go ahead. Let's talk about the memes. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, memes are like honestly some of the most insightful things in social media today. Because now why? Why do you say that? Because they're driven by some emotion. Like the creation of the meme had to be triggered by someone feeling something. And I don't know about you, but there's so many times I see a meme and I'm like. Yes, I feel that way. I can connect to that. Yeah. So, okay, great. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about it. I think your perspective is so different um, than some of the stuff we do in research. So it's been really helpful for me to just sort of pick your brain a little bit about that. Thanks for having me, April. It was super fun. Thank you for tuning into this edition of Inside Out. Included in our show notes today is a link to Manica's research project entitled, Can Brands Be a Bridge to a Better Future? Also, don't forget to hit subscribe on your latest podcasting app to make sure you get all of our latest episodes delivered to you.